Amen. If you would remain standing with me as we turn to the Word of God from the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew, Matthew 16. I'm actually beginning back in the series of Matthew that I ended at the end of last year. I had no idea we were going to be on such a long excursion through our vision. But we are picking this up in an appropriate place as well as we now take heed to the Word of God. Let's begin in verse 21 through verse 28. Now hear God's Word. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit is it if a man, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are that You have given us instruction in the Word and the Gospel. We're thankful that the gospel is not merely a set of propositions of some truth, but it is the life that Christ has given, the life that He has raised up. We are thankful that You have called us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of this wonderful light, where we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins, and we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We ask now that the Spirit of God would be poured out upon the preaching of the Word, that you would bring forth the fruit desirable to yourself, fruit that is pleasing in your sight, and be glorified now in this worship we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to kind of get back to Matthew. I'm encouraged to know where we're going to settle in for a little bit and see what God has in store for us. This morning I'm resuming this series on Matthew where we left off a number of months back. This was a good stopping point and I want to show you why. Because here he is beginning to resume or go into another section of his epistle or the gospel. He's, there's another section and I want to draw your attention of that section because it's going to be important for the days to come. As you notice here in verse 21, the Scripture begins here, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples. There's another phrase that is exactly like that phrase in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And it says this, from that time, Jesus began... And then it says, to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And those two phrases indicate something about 
where we are in Matthew and the transition that he is making with his own disciples. He began to preach the kingdom of God in his public preaching ministry. And from that time beginning, it says he began to preach in Matthew 4. But here in 16.21, it says, and he, and from that time Jesus began to show his disciples. This marks a shift in the focus of Jesus' ministry from his public preaching to a more private, intimate discipleship with his 12 disciples. And the first thing he does here is he instructs them about his coming death. He then relates his death to their own discipleship. And all of that has much to do with the very nature of the kingdom that he brought into this world when he came, when he died and was resurrected. So it's instructive for us to know that our Lord's death on the cross and our discipleship are inseparable. And those two inseparable facts say something about the very nature of the kingdom of God that he came to bring, which is continuing to grow And you are act five of that kingdom until Christ comes back in glory. So I want to preach this morning on Jesus' death and our discipleship. Well, that's what I wanted to preach on. And I found myself uh, extending this into two messages. You'll be thankful I'm stopping short. And I'm only going to get to the first half of that message this morning. And here we are going to speak about Jesus' death. The first thing that we want to understand, the first things that Jesus wanted his disciples to know was the necessity of his death. Verse 21 says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus was well aware of what was going to happen. In fact, he knew specifically what was going to happen. He knew this was his calling. He knew this was his vocation. He knew this is why he came. This was the beginning of these teachings to the disciples. Remember another occasion when Jesus says, I have much to teach you now, but you cannot all bear it at the time. And so here was the beginning They would not understand these things until after they had happened. And the Spirit would bring the understanding. But Jesus instructs them of the details. He instructs them of the place. It's going to be in Jerusalem. He instructs them of the very nature of this death. It's going to be a suffering death. He instructs them of the perpetrators. It's going to be the elders and the priests and the scribes, the leaders of Israel. And the conclusion of the matter as well, he's going to be raised on the third day. Now this was the first time that Jesus had actually spoken to his disciples explicitly on these things. This is the first time they are hearing this. The fact is, Jesus said, I must die. Here he doesn't explain why. Sometimes that's the occasion. He he throws out the information 
Later he will explain it, but here he doesn't even explain it. He just lays it out there. And there are many other passages that do explain why Jesus died. But here he doesn't give that explanation. It's just a, a fact. But the reason that the Scripture does reveal why Jesus died is that Jesus died to atone for the sins of sinners. To atone for sinners themselves. He atones for them by substituting Himself in the place of sinners who are sentenced to die, righteously so. Sin is a rebellion against God. Sin is our rebellion against our Creator. And death is the righteous sentence for sin. And it must be carried out to ensure righteousness. If God is going to be just, He must carry out the just sanction for that sin. And since everyone has sinned and no one can satisfy God's justice and live, God sent His Son Jesus to become a substitute for sinners. And His death on the cross was the place where sinners would then have the righteousness of Christ given to them, and Jesus would take their sin upon Him, and He would receive the wrath of God that we deserve, but upon Himself. This is a complete substitutionary atonement, as theologians would call it. A vicarious atonement. And Jesus would receive the wrath of God. And He would satisfy the righteous penalty of the law for sinners in dying upon the cross. He rose again the third day. God was satisfied with that just payment for sinners. But because He Himself knew no sin... God was satisfied with the wrath that He in the substitutionary atonement made for sinners. And so God being pleased demonstrated that by raising Him up. There is a sense that Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I'll lay it down and I'll take it up myself. But there's also the Scripture that reveals that God in the power of the Spirit raised Him up. The very power of the Spirit that raised Him up has been now given to you. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the Gospel. Several weeks ago, Keith challenged us to go and summarize. What is the Gospel? What exactly is the Gospel? The Apostle Paul summarizes that up fairly well and very concisely in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the Gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now the Scriptures there that they would have had in Paul's day would have been referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. And from the Old Testament Scriptures, they would know that Messiah should die and be raised the third day. Jesus is just telling them something that had already been prophesied. But this gospel promises 
that whoever call upon Jesus and believe that God raised him from the dead and give their lives over to him, trust him, will be saved. Saved from their sins. Saved from the eternal consequences of their sins. Given a life that has purpose. Having the image of God being restored in us. Now being called into this royal priesthood to represent God into this world and to gather up the praises of creation and express them verbally here as we are doing this day. The main reason that Jesus came in the flesh as a man was so that he could die an atoning death for sinners. It's the very essence of the incarnation as the last Adam. And so he informed his disciples, he must die. Now the disciples at this point in time were a long ways away. Long ways off from understanding that. And we see that in Peter's response. Peter rebukes the Lord, and his rebuke represents our own sinful weakness. We should see ourselves in Peter here, rather than being so harsh at Peter, who was a bit impetuous and just kind of spoke his mind and often reacted without thinking. How true that is for us. Then Peter took him aside, verse 22, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this will not happen to you. It's interesting, Peter assumes for himself a particular stature. You might remember the immediate context. It's been so long since we have come to this immediate context, but if you can recall, the immediate context was right before here. Jesus was asking, who do you say that I am? Or who do people say that I am? They gave the answer, and Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for heaven has revealed that to you. Now, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against... And here, Peter's got some stature now. He's in a little bit of a posture. And Jesus tells him something that he didn't want to hear, and he didn't like. And he rebukes the Lord. Perhaps he takes Jesus aside. I don't know. You can almost imagine the scene with Peter. He takes him aside, the scripture says. Maybe puts his hand on his shoulder. I don't know. You can imagine Peter with some gesturing, right? Not so, Lord. It will not happen to you. You have to admit, or you have to understand that Jesus had just, or Peter had just admitted that Jesus was the long-awaited, prophesied Messiah. The Messiah who he acknowledged was the Son of the living God. And the notion of a crucified Messiah was unfathomable for any Jew to conceive. The Old Testament represents the coming Messiah as a conquering king, a triumphant 
king to release all of his people from the oppression of the enemies. And they had not had a king since they had been taken out of exile or brought into exile into Babylon. And even when they returned to their land, they had no king. Then the Romans were currently and presently oppressing them. And here he was, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The disciples had been drilled into their minds and catechized from their childhood that the Messiah would be a conquering king. They could not even conceive of the notion that Jesus had laid before them. A crucified Messiah? Do you know how offensive that is for a Jew's ear to hear? Absolutely not, Peter would say. This will not happen to you, Jesus. Well, this had been prophesied from old and very explicit passages that we have all throughout the Scriptures, including the one from Daniel that gives us even a specific time frame, but Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant Psalms throughout Isaiah. And we have many Scriptures. They did not understand this. And when Jews would come to the passage of Messiah being a conquering king, that was easy to understand. That was applauded. That was the the aspect that they were looking for. But when the Scripture spoke of a king that would die, they must have just glossed over that. They must have said, "Eh, I don't quite understand that. And they were focused on the one, and that's why they missed the other. So a crucified Messiah would be a stumbling block for a Jew. And it still is to this day. This is the truth that rocked Paul's world and turned his entire understanding of Scripture upside down when he was confronted with this crucified Messiah, now risen on the third day, now ascended upon heaven, and here is Paul going to persecute the church, this Messiah's bride. I don't know about you, but you come against my bride, and I'm going to get in your way. Think about Jesus. And Paul is persecuting the church and Jesus stopped him in his tracks on that road to Damascus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you're doing it to my bride, it's as if you are doing it to me. Rocked his world. Turned it upside down. He went around then blind all the way up to Damascus until the time when Ananias met him, baptized him, he received his sight, and he is still just trying to take this in. And with the illumination of the Spirit now, Paul begins to understand all that the Scripture, all the the complete Scripture, the, the whole counsel of God is being pressed upon him in an entirely different paradigm from that which he would ever conceive. And here was Peter, He was the first one that stumbled over this truth. 
And Peter grows up with a certain truth, and now the next truth comes along that seems to contradict his worldview. He's a lot like us. He just simply can't accept it. So he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him in the strongest of terms. The Greek there shows us the strongest of terms. Use two negatives. Not, not. And that is the way in which the most emphatic negative form can be used. And even in the face of very specific details that the Messiah, the Son of the living God gave, he must die. He's going to go to Jerusalem. It's going to be by the scribes, the elders, and the it's a suffering death. And then he's going to be raised the third day. Very specific details. In the face of all that, Peter challenged him. How many times are we just like Peter? Just like Peter. Having grown up in a particular religious worldview, maybe a particular sect or a particular framework of mind and not very open to other truths that come along to seem to contradict what we have always been taught. And our immediate reaction is, not so, Lord. It wouldn't be the last time Peter would say those words. How hard is it sometimes to open up ourselves to, to hear and to understand truth? We feel vulnerable and threatened. Something of our worldview gets rocked. And so we protect what we know. There's a perceived danger or a threat that we often feel like we must defend, but we do so in ignorance. And if we come to the Bible with such strong preconceptions of how things are to the extent that we're unwilling to listen to new truths that come along, we may act just like Peter and rebuke the very truth that is meant for our good. Be watchful of our posture. Our stature that we assume oftentimes for ourselves that appeals to our flesh and our justifiable position in our own eyes. Humility with an assuming, teachable spirit is essential for our spiritual good. Otherwise, we may stand against the very essential thing that must happen for our good. We stand against the essential things that are for our good when we are not in the right frame of mind or posture. And how many times we in our folly cut the hand off that feeds us or stands against the corrections we need to hear. Well, Jesus' response to Peter was just as shocking as Peter's response was to Jesus. In verse 23, he turns to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In verses 22 and 23, 
we're witnessing some of the strongest language between Jesus and one of his disciples ever found in Holy Scripture. Peter, in a sense, is representing the church. That's the wife. That's his wife. And Jesus strongly corrects Peter to bring him into conformity with God's will because it is for his good and it is for the good of his church and it is for the good of this entire world. It is God's plan from the beginning. And Peter was out of line not only in rebuking the Lord, but in rebuking the content of what our Lord had said. Both were wrong. The challenge was wrong, and the content was wrong. The message and the medium. Now, two things we should note here. Jesus addresses Satan in his message to Peter. And we should note that Jesus was not addressing Peter as though he had become Satan. Nor does the Spirit desire for us to understand that Peter was Satan. That would be missing the point entirely. It's the wrong way to understand this, but the Lord is revealing what is taking place beyond what our eyes can see. Jesus was talking quite beyond Peter. He is looking and seeing something that Peter cannot see, his disciples cannot see. But he is hearing. And what was going on here is that this was the work and the message of Satan channeled through a very unsuspecting Peter, and the Lord wanted Peter to know this. Peter had become a tool of Satan And he became a stumbling block to Jesus and his mission. You are an offense to me. Now that word offense is a word that often translators would translate stumbling block. And that's probably the better way to think about it. A stumbling block is an impediment that is put in the path of someone to cause them to stumble. And Jesus was saying to Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. Here behind the scenes, Satan was at work again. Like he was in the wilderness temptations, like he had was to all of Jesus' life, always tempting Jesus for an easier way that Jesus knew. Always trying to steer him to find the easier path. And yet Jesus, the Scripture says, learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Here behind the scenes, Satan was at work again. He was tempting Jesus to find an easier path than the suffering that Jesus knew must take place. Satan knew the Scripture very well. In fact, Satan probably knew the Scripture way more than Peter does. Satan probably knows a lot of the Scriptures a lot more than we do. He's had a lot of time to think about these things. He's had a lot of time to refute. It's the same Satan there that for now 2,000 years later, he's been able to hone his craft even more so. But he did not have an accurate comprehension of the Scriptures. So he maligns it. He uses it however he can or tries. 
And here is another temptation that Satan is laying before the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is doing it through the beloved Peter. Peter is an instrument of the evil one. Quite unsuspecting to Peter, and with, with good intentions, mind you, what Peter actually said was the devil's stumbling block to Jesus. Jesus was now on a path. He was on the mission and He began to show His disciples what must take place. Now that they have comprehended that He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, He now has to show them what He must do to save the world. And there He set His chart and His course to Jerusalem. And as He sat there, the very first thing, the very first occasion that Jesus brings us to the disciples' attention Right in front of his feet, Satan's going to throw a stumbling block through his beloved disciple, Peter. Peter was being used as an implement to try to get the Lord to stumble in doing what he was supposed to do. And Peter himself became that stumbling block. Now, the second thing we should consider here is that we too can be used, just like Peter, in an unsuspecting way to stand against the will of God when we're mindful of the things of man. He says, Peter, you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And what makes us susceptible to becoming a stumbling block to other Christians or to... Christ's bride, His church, or to her ministers, is when our mind is set upon man's interests and not on God's. We can do that in quite an unsuspecting way. We can do that with good intentions. You may have good intentions. You may mean well. You may be thinking in terms of what is right and best. But when your thinking is such that you are thinking about it as a man would think about it and not as God would think about it, you become a stumbling block. And that's what is going on here. You can become an instrument in the hands of the enemy. Now I want to give you an example by way of the Scriptures. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul would go on to face this kind of thing in the church. And in fact, so common is it in the church that he writes it in the pastoral epistles and he warns both Timothy and Titus over three different letters to have to be careful and watch out for this very thing. If it can take Peter, it can take you, it can take me. Paul is exhorting this young pastor Timothy on the very principle in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, and he's telling Timothy how a servant, how a pastor, how a minister ought to handle himself in this kind of situation. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. 
and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. This is actually a very sober reality to think that any one of us can be used unwittingly to be an instrument of the devil to stand against Christ and his mission against his church or against his ministers. Consider the characteristics in this passage of these unsuspecting vessels who often get taken captive to do the enemy's work. The characteristics are exactly the opposite of what Paul is commending to Timothy. Notice, first of all, there's a characteristic of the antithesis. Remember the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and there's this great cosmic battle in this antithesis right from Genesis 3. And this antithesis will find its place into the world all throughout the history of the church, throughout all of the Old Testament Scriptures, right into the time when Christ comes. And now we see this antithesis going on with Peter, where he is doing the enemy's work. It goes right on into the church today where when we become the instrument of the enemy, we stand against the very good things that God has for His people. But if you have a characteristic of the antithesis, someone in the church who is against the church, but perhaps thinks he is doing right, it's this characteristic of antithesis within the body of Christ. It's why Paul prays for the unity of the Spirit. It's why he speaks so often about being of one mind and one spirit. Therefore, fulfill ye my joy as he talks to the Corinthians. It's why he is approaching the church at Corinth chapter after chapter, line upon line and precept upon precept against the very notion that the antithesis had grown so much in the church that in some places they did not even look like the church. But the characteristic of the antithesis comes out in quarrelsome characteristics. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel. He must not get caught up in the strifes and the, and the endless genealogies and the problems that are not characteristic of Christ. Ones who stir up strife, and that what we're talking about is a characteristic spirit here. We're not talking about a person who can disagree. It's not a disagreeable point, but it is a disagreeable spirit. A spirit that has a disagreement in the characteristics so that it is battling with quarrelsome strife. It's that which animates the person. They take issues on matter that do not matter. Like the genealogies and the old wives' fables and other things that Paul would go on to express. And you have to think about those things in terms of that first century Jewish mind because those endless genealogies that Paul says can, were pretty important to the first century Jew. So those things they thought were really important theological issues could actually be taken in the wrong way and create strife. But notice too, they do not have a gentle spirit. A servant must not quarrel. He can't be like those who oppose him. He has to have a gentle spirit. 
rather than a harsh spirit. Number three, the people like this who can be taken captive to do the enemy's will. They're proud. They're unteachable. They stand their ground. They don't readily receive instruction. They don't receive rebuke or correction or training in righteousness. But a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. He must be gentle to all. Able to teach. And I think the word able to teach means that he was apt to teach to begin with. And patient. In humility. Correcting those who are in opposition. Those who are in opposition are impatient. Demanding others to see their way. They oppose the truth and those who bear it. And for those with those characteristics, they have become to the place where they don't sense it. And hopefully with the patient endurance, gentle teaching, and mild corrections, Jesus will bring the gentleness of Christ to bring them to repentance. It says, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. What verse 26 is implying is there's people in the church who are not in their right mind. They're not about their right senses. Because they are deceived by the enemy. And now they're being used to channel his harm and his problems within the church, hoping to cause division, hoping to lead people astray. And the hope is here that these people would come to their senses because they've been ensnared by the devil to do his will, opposing Christ, opposing his ministers, opposing the church, opposing his people. They've been taken captive. They're deceived in those who are also spreading their cancer to others with things that are not true, though they believe them to be. They think they are doing right They believe they have a cause, but all the while they are doing the devil's work and not Christ's work. Paul warns ministers that there are those in the church who are doing the devil's work unsuspectingly. They don't realize it. They don't see what's going on. The devil's working behind the scenes to put a stumbling block in the way of Christ's church and the way of His mission or in the way of his ministers. And Paul warns that there are those who are always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of truth. Those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. But there are also those who are like Peter. Good intentions. Thinking he's saying the right thing. But he's thinking about it all in the way that a man thinks about it and not the way God thinks about it. We need to be careful in our self-trained bent in our modern American culture that has shaped us to be contrarian, confrontational, harsh, impatient, thinking in in the way that a man would think, independent, frontiersman, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, proud, 
challenger to the opposition, an opposer to things that we have to be careful. This is the air that we've breathed. This is the context that we've grown up in. And that is not the character of the king or of his kingdom. The king says the Messiah must suffer and die. And God would raise him up the third day. God would do the business. God would take care of the other things. I'm leaving it into the hands of my Father to do what He has said He's going to do in His agreement, in His part of this agreement, and I'm going to follow my Father's will and what I'm supposed to do in being faithful to Him. I must suffer and die. You know, Jesus, when He went to the cross, had to trust His Father to raise Him up. That is why the Scripture in Hebrews says that He is the author. That word is the the pioneer, the one who blazed the trail and the finisher of our faith. He perfected our faith. And it's not that Jesus didn't have to have faith trusting the Father. No, He was the actual pioneer of that which we now must follow. He has gone through death and come out the other side, and He expects us now to do that because we have to trust Him. We must be faithful what He's called us to do and leave the results to God. Boy, isn't that a great statement that Stonewall Jackson made? Duty is mine, results are God's. Duty is mine, results are God's. Do what you are to do. Be faithful to God. Don't worry about the results. The results are God's. Suffer and die. Leave the results to God. Because that's exactly what he's now next going to cause disciples to do. His disciples are not only called to receive this difficult truth about their Messiah and about their Lord, about the Son of the living God, but they are called down to follow this very same pattern for them and for his kingdom. It was a completely earth-shattering paradigm shift in their mind. It would be a discipleship and a life in the kingdom that will require their suffering. Denying themselves and picking up their cross, an implement of death, and following Him in the way that He is about to show them. And that's so true of us today. We can't die an atoning death like He did, neither did His disciples. But we have to follow Him. This is going to suggest to us much about the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom was going to be much different than the Jews had anticipated. Oh, it would be political. Oh, it would be spiritual. It would be, it would be that which only did not last a mere generation. It would also be that which would bring in the new heavens and the new earth and completely transform this earth completely. It would not only do everything that they had hoped for, but it would do so much more, but it was going to be done in a completely different way. And I think 
it is also much different from the way many Christians think about the kingdom today as well. Christ's kingdom has come. We're not waiting for it. It has come. The king has drawn near. Repent, because the king is here. It will progress in this world, and it will continue to advance through the sufferings of his disciples. Now, if you don't want to suffer for Jesus' sake, if that's not your calling or your lot, there's the door. There's the door. Being a disciple of Jesus is being His child, being His. It's not a second tier of being a Christian. You don't just receive Jesus as Savior and then you have an option later to receive Him as Lord. If you are going to be His disciple, you must be willing to suffer for His name. He's going to explain that. If you desire to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for His sake, you're going to gain it. You have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus. That is going to be the way of His kingdom. He will reward you tremendously, but you've got a vocation. This is not merely something that He is doing to take you out of sin and save you, to put you off into heaven somewhere. He is giving you a vocation and a mission to fulfill that is going to be a part of the future glorification of this new heavens and the new earth. And He's calling you out of darkness into the wonderful kingdom of light, But you've got to suffer. Through many tribulations, they will enter the kingdom of God. And you know, the right perspective of this, the right posture of this, is what Paul finally came around to learn. Oh, that I may know Him in the fellowship of His sufferings. It was glorious. Because if he walked by faith, he could see that there was a crown of righteousness laid up for him on the other side. Just like Jesus, the sufferings are not themselves enjoyable, but it is because of the joy that was set before him on the other side of the cross. He endured the shameful death of the cross, and he did it to fulfill his Father's will and his love for his people. The kingdom of God is not something we build. That would be an arrogant way to think about it, and that would be the way that a man would think about it. Rather, God builds His kingdom as His people are faithful in following Jesus, the King. I had hoped that I could bring this to bear to have the whole next part of my 
So this was a one-point sermon. The second point is going to be a whole other sermon next week as it gets into that actual part of what it means to be a disciple. Even in what it means to be a disciple will express the very nature of the kingdom. So next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will turn to the necessity of what it takes to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ and to have the great joy the great privilege and the wonderful blessing to serve the great King of kings and Lord of lords in His close court. But let's be careful to allow the Scriptures themselves to shape and to form our character so that we think about Christ in the way that God thinks about Christ. We think about the church in the way that God thinks about the church. We think about the kingdom in the way that God would have us to think about His kingdom and His mission. Let us yield ourselves to be shaped by God's way of thinking and not assume upon ourselves the way we think it ought to be. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are that with the coming of Christ, He brought this kingdom to, of God to earth. We're thankful that we see the victory in the work upon the cross and His resurrection, His ascension back upon high, seated in His glory at Your right hand, who has given the Spirit now to the church and empowered her with the same power that raised Him from the grave, that we might be alive and vibrant, and knowing that the gates of hell will not stand against the church. But Lord, as we then battle with the armor that You have given to us, and not try to battle in the way that the enemy battles. He stands for lies and deception, but we speak the truth. And when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. When He is violent, we can exchange this with love. And we are not to let our good be evil spoken of or return evil for evil. But Lord, we pray that our good works would be that which Christ would use to subdue the enemy, and to bring many into the kingdom. We pray that you would teach us much about the nature of the kingdom and following Christ and learning obedience even through the things which we suffer. And we pray we would be willing to follow Christ at all costs and that you would rid us of any of the idols that would be the stumbling block to our own lives to have everything yielded up to Christ in fullness. And Lord, we pray that You would remove any stumbling blocks that we may be causing for the cause of Christ and His mission in the church or for His ministers or for His members. And we pray that You would expose these things to our own minds that we would not be led captive by the evil one to do His will. So bring the truth to bear and dispel deceptions and pray You would cleanse us from our sins as we trust in Christ to release us. And we pray this in His strong name. Amen.